I recently did a video conversation with Dr. George Simon on the global narcissism pandemic. This podcast episode is going to contain that conversation with an intro by me on my reflections after our conversation. Dr. Simon and I agree on a lot of things, and we disagree on some things too. Nowadays in society, what we see is a lot of yelling and irrational arguments, online especially, but also in person when people disagree. What seems to be very rare nowadays are opportunities to observe people disagree in healthy ways through a rational intellectual conversation. I'm grateful Dr. Simon was a willing participant in modeling a healthy form of disagreement as we explored the topic of narcissism in our world today. This is Meredith Miller, and you're listening to the Inner Integration Podcast, where you can learn the mindsets and tools to self-heal after narcissistic abuse. During our conversation, I asked Dr. Simon a very common question that I often hear and have also asked myself. Why does it seem like they all read the same book? No matter what country, race, gender, or socioeconomic class they're from, narcissistic abuse is almost identical around the world. Dr. Simon says it's the zeitgeist, the German word for the cultural climate of the time, that's causing this trend. I hadn't considered that, and I think he's right. It reminded me of Terence McKenna's famous statement, culture is not your friend. He said that decades ago, but it's still very relevant now. My teacher in Peru went along with McKenna's train of thought that while some of the socialization things like potty training are necessary, he teaches an Andean philosophy based on salcha, a Quechua word, which he defines as non-domesticated or free energy. He is careful to clarify this is not the same as wild. As we are entering the 2020s, culture is spreading globally on steroids via technology. Dr. Simon compared the shift in culture when he mentioned that in the past, there was a repressive culture where people were neurotic and developing psychosomatic illnesses as a result of overworrying. He says, nowadays we live in a permissive culture with moral relativism, which supports this trend of narcissism and the tolerance of disordered behavior. I can see how he's right about that, and I believe we need to find a middle ground between repression and permissiveness. The Buddhists say, you don't find the middle ground directly. First, you go to both extremes so you can figure out where the middle is. And here we are. What's our current culture? Have you seen the movie Idiocracy? It's an oldie but goodie, an uncanny portrayal of society and where we likely are going if we continue down the same trajectory. The powers that be are dumbing people down to keep them under control. They fill our minds with gaslighting and ideological talking points to argue in order to keep people from thinking independently or unifying. They fill people's bodies with processed food-like substances that make people sick and lazy. They sell us garbage values. These garbage values are promoted on TV and social media. They keep people desiring after the newest model of material stuff in order to get status and image. Pressure is applied to front an Instagram perfect life. Look at me, I'm so cool and happy. Or, I had a great time doing blah blah with blah blah blah. Or, I'm so honored to be doing blah blah with blah blah blah. It's like they're all following the same script of the superficial influencer. Of course, no one sees the tears and struggle behind the scenes, so they feel something is wrong with them. 
for not living the insta-perfect life that they see online. The powers that be have groomed people away from the Joneses and their suburban house with a white picket fence and 2.5 children. Nowadays, society is keeping up with the Kardashians. These are our supposed role models. Millions of people are having plastic surgeries to implant toxic objects into their body parts and even injecting botulism into their faces in order to remain relevant in the narcissistic culture. No wonder my grandmother was terrified of the world in her later years. It has undoubtedly become a very weird place. On top of that, technology has made it easier to troll and abuse people online. It's a lot easier to say whatever you want when you're hiding behind a screen than when you're face-to-face with someone and more likely to feel empathy for another human. In the online world, everything is dehumanized. It's just words on a screen and a binary code holding it all together on a server or a cloud somewhere. I can't imagine how hard it is for kids these days where the bullying is now 24-7 due to social media. Back in my pre-internet days, when you left school, at least the bullying was over until the next day. Unless, of course, you came from a narcissistic family in which the nightmare never ended. In addition to culture as the culprit of the global pandemic of narcissistic abuse, Dr. Simon also mentioned, we are animals after all. When humans go through a process of socialization or what my teacher in Peru called domestication, we learn how to become productive, decent members of the family and society. We put our young through the process of potty training so they no longer have to wear diapers and won't be defecating or marking territory all over the place like wild animals. However, that domestication process doesn't stop people from shitting the bed of society, the family, and relationships, so to speak. But I don't believe that we are animals. I think that's a bad excuse for poor behavior. I hear people justify polyamory for that reason. The bonobos, they say. And personally, I believe polyamory, casual sex, the porn industry, and the over-sexualization of culture is destroying relationships and intimacy. Also, the genetic leap from the primates to the first human has never been proven by science. They don't really know how that happened, so who knows? Maybe we're just a genetic experiment of some other species that we aren't even aware of yet. Dr. Simon and I disagree on the topic of whether narcissists can change. I personally don't think so. I've never seen it. I've just seen the covert ones change their behavioral tactics to be more stealth and sophisticated with their abuse after they became aware of the cracks in their masks. I can understand how Dr. Simon describes narcissism as a spectrum. I would agree with that. And I believe someone with very light narcissistic characteristics of maybe some self-absorption might be able to reform themselves with a lot of effort and a great willingness to give up their entitlement and manipulation tactics that they use to get what they want. For those who are on the malevolent side of the spectrum, or malignant as they call them in psychology, I would say there's no chance for them changing. Remember, this malignancy can also be covert. It doesn't have to be the overt type of aggression and ill will. I do agree with Dr. Simon that there needs to be more focus on behavior and not giving people a pass for bad behavior by looking underneath and rationalizing their abusive behavior based on fear or insecurity. That encourages compassion for the abuser and tolerance for the abuse, which leads to the loss of self for the victim. 
It also doesn't contain any kind of solution. If anything, it just encourages the victim to keep trying to fix the unfixable while remaining in harm's way. Dr. Simon and I also disagree on the word codependency. He believes that word is only for family systems with an alcoholic or addict where the lives of the whole family are governed by that substance. Back when the word codependency became well known, the topic of narcissism was barely talked about. This is practically a new field in the realm of collective awareness. It wasn't until the very recent years that narcissistic abuse has become well known. Sometimes we reappropriate words that were used in the past for something else to also describe modern phenomena that we discover. When I look at narcissistic family systems, I see the same dynamics of a person with the problem that is destroying their life and other people's lives, and the rest who are their enablers. The enablers are the people-pleasers, the self-abandoners, the self-sacrificers, the ones with poor boundaries and a difficult time saying no, the ones who always want to help others or rescue people, the ones who define their worthiness based on caretaking others or feeling needed. These are the same toxic habits that a codependent has in an alcoholic or drug addict family system. In a narcissistic family, there is a substance too. As I wrote in my book, The Journey, it's just that this substance doesn't come in a bottle, pill, or needle. The substance is narcissistic supply. It is invisible. And the entire lives of all the family members are governed by the narcissistic character's need, search for, and consumption of narcissistic supply, which they get entirely from other people. And in the process, they deplete and destroy other people's lives. Dr. Simon suggests the term emotional dependency instead, where a person needs external validation from someone else in order to feel worthy. That's definitely part of the issues that a person has when they come from a narcissistic family system. But it's also much, much more. Only focusing on the validation piece will not help the person heal beyond that one point. Words have meaning. Words mean something. And I'm careful about the words I choose. Until we come up with a better term for these codependent behaviors caused specifically by narcissistic family system, I'm sticking with this word. That's also why I like Lisa A. Romano's work. She grew up in an alcoholic family and later got into relationships with narcissists. She describes how similar these patterns are among the enablers of the alcoholic as well as the enablers of the narcissist. Now, of course, Codependency is not the case for everyone who finds themselves in an adult relationship with a narcissistic character. If a person only got into one abusive relationship and didn't come from a family system like that, likely what was going on was they were preyed upon due to a recent vulnerability or loss. Maybe someone they loved died, or maybe they had a big disappointment in their career, a chronic illness, a painful divorce, something like that, when a predator smelled their blood a mile away. I would say that is a very small percentage of people who get into these relationships. Usually, it's because they were raised in a similar family system, and often, they aren't aware of that yet. Digging into the family patterns usually comes in stage two of the recovery process. Dr. Simon mentioned the gaslighting effect, where people think they're going crazy due to the manipulation and abuse of others. Everyone who has been in any kind of relationship with a narcissist or other abuser can relate to feeling like they're going crazy. 
Contrary, however, to Dr. Simon's belief that people need someone with a PhD to tell them they're not crazy, I have noticed that people just need someone who gets it to validate it. I disagree that a PhD is necessary. I believe that's the old school paradigm. Nowadays, things have changed. Academia and degrees aren't everything when you can go online from anywhere in the world and find support groups, blogs, articles, videos, books, even coaches and survivors that validate you just the same. I've noticed that what people most want is to know that someone else gets it. That's not about having a degree, and this topic is usually not learned in an institution of higher learning, but rather in the school of life. I asked Dr. Simon why he thinks narcissistic abuse isn't taught in psychology and counseling programs. He said it's because the academia is still focused on Freud's time period, marked by neurosis and repression, whereas nowadays there is more of a moral relativism and a permissive nature of culture. It sounds like the science of psychology is outdated and will need to get updated to the 21st century, hopefully sooner rather than later. Dr. Simon agreed with me that the Bible of psychology and psychiatry, what they call the DSM, doesn't really portray how these manipulative characters really appear in real life. The DSM doesn't take into account the covert type, another point Dr. Simon also acknowledged. Another PhD psychologist that I interviewed last year said that psychopathy isn't a diagnosis, just a field of study. I found that really hard to believe, given that psychopathy is the number one public health crisis of our time, according to Sandra L. Brown, who has studied thousands of victims of psychopaths. Antisocial personality disorder, what we colloquially refer to as the sociopath, can only be diagnosed in adulthood and only if the person was diagnosed with conduct disorder as a minor. I find that ridiculous. That just means the really skilled ones didn't get caught. That also likely means that the ASPDs getting diagnosed are more of the overt types. So if a covert type escapes the childhood diagnosis of conduct disorder, then they can go on as adults to wreak havoc in relationships, family, and society, yet never be labeled for who they really are. That makes no sense to me. I've also heard Chris Godinez, an excellent therapist and educator on YouTube, mention that she heard the American Psychiatry Association wanted to take NPD out of the next version of the DSM. Now, that would be moving in the wrong direction. Why would they want to do that? Now, that's an interesting question to ask. But that was also before Trump. So hopefully now they can't remove it, since many people are now familiar with the term narcissist. Now, I want to clarify, as I mentioned in the video with Dr. Simon, I don't think Trump is the only narcissist in the government. It has always been full of these types and worse. It's just that until now, it was much more covert, seemingly diplomatic, very stealth, and sophisticated. Finally, we have more transparency. And if we look closely, we can see that Trump is merely a symptom of a much, much bigger problem. Dr. Simon also mentioned the need to update the psychology definition of personality disorders, since the term disorder used to mean that the person couldn't be successful in the world. But what we see nowadays is that many successful politicians, executives, CEOs, media personalities, entertainers, heads of organizations, religious or spiritual institutions, etc., rise into power not despite their disorders, but because of it. 
We are living in a society where these malevolent behaviors are elevated, even sought out in corporations, for example, that give the psychopathy test to applicants for high-level positions, not to discard them from the process, but rather for recruitment into the corporate culture of profit over all else. So it does indeed sound like the APA needs to rework their definition of personality disorders. If we were to refine the definition, I think somewhere in there should be a focus on what makes it a disorder, which I believe is predominantly the lack of conscience or the malfunctioning of conscience. Our conscience is what makes us human. It's how we weigh out good and evil. It's what gives us a heavy sense of guilt when we do something that hurts someone else. The conscience is also how we form healthy emotional attachments to others and what gives us our human quality of empathy. These manipulative characters all have a disorder of the conscience. It just happens to be that current culture rewards that. Just because something is normal doesn't make it right. Dr. Simon and I brought up some political topics during the conversation to bring greater public awareness to narcissism. It's important to understand that narcissistic abuse is happening on an interpersonal level, a familial level, and a societal level. And I'm not just talking about Trump. If you think he's the first narcissist, or that 2016 was the beginning of narcissistic abuse in the government, you either haven't been paying attention, or you've been blinded by your own political bias. Some people are very averse to topics of politics and society. Most people are asleep to the dynamics of narcissistic abuse in society, even those who concede in their interpersonal relationships and or family. But it's real, and you'll find the same patterns from the micro to the macro level. Bias is dangerous. We must always be examining our thoughts, perspectives, and beliefs to check for bias. Bias will blind you from seeing the truth that you don't want to see. People who come from narcissistic families often think that they have a great family. Women with covert narcissist mothers often say they're best friends. People often think their abusive partner is still a great person underneath it all, despite all the terror that's happened. In the same way, people often lock themselves into a particular political party or ideology and support anyone on that ticket without investigating who they really are, as long as they're on the team they're cheering for in the game. When you stop listening and questioning because of your bias, that's a great way to remain ignorant. That's not even naivete. That's called willful ignorance. We see it all the time. People look away from evidence that doesn't support their world vision or the ideological narrative they believe in. One quick tour through Twitter or Facebook and you'll see how many people can't stand hearing an opinion that doesn't agree with theirs. Just the other day, I saw a story about a school bus driver who snatched the hat off one of the kids boarding his bus because he didn't agree with his political views. We're also seeing a dangerous slide into censorship online and on college campuses especially, where radical ideologists are demanding to silence the voices they don't agree with. Free speech has become free speech only for those they agree with, and that is not free speech at all. That's fascism. And the irony is that this agenda is coming from the team that's calling the other team fascist. That is another representation of narcissism in society that parallels interpersonal relationships. Think about a narcissist you knew. What happened if you disagreed with them or had a different opinion? Exactly. Dr. Simon and I agree that big changes are coming to society and the world. He mentioned the first step in the 12-step programs, 
which is why have things become unmanageable? That's a great question. If we aren't aware what the problem is, then there's nothing we can do about it. Dr. Simon and I agree that society will have to hit rock bottom, much like an alcoholic, addict, or victim of abuse before things can improve. You probably remember that rock bottom point in your own recovery. It was when things got as bad as they could be, so bad, that the ugly reality pierced the veil of your denial and you were able to admit something is wrong. That something was the abusive relationship. You were suffering, but you didn't know why until you found out about narcissistic abuse. People in the world are suffering because we are living in a messed up culture and power structure. The suffering is likely going to increase until it's utterly insupportable and the entire system is imploding. That will likely be the only way that humanity will make changes in our world. Think back to what it took for you to finally wake up to the abusive relationship or the narcissistic family dynamics. Something drastic enough probably had to happen in order to break through your denial. I call those the frying pan to the head lessons. Nobody wants to get the tower card, but destruction of the old is necessary for the new to begin to take form. At the end of the conversation, I asked Dr. Simon what he thinks is the solution to the global narcissistic pandemic. He said, we need to make character the issue so things will get better. He says we are facing a character crisis in the world, and he can remember a time when if a person could disgrace a team or institution, they wouldn't get hired no matter how talented they were. He's right. That has drastically changed nowadays. Dr. Simon brings the solution back to humanity. He says, it's up to us. We are all connected, and we are in this together. That perspective is on the same page with the main value of my work in self-healing after narcissistic abuse, which is self-responsibility. I believe that as each individual takes responsibility for ourselves, we will create a better world. I could go on about this forever because I love talking about these topics, but now I'm going to segue into the recorded conversation between Dr. Simon and I. I would love to hear your opinions and beliefs on these topics, so please share them in the comments on the YouTube video. Hey everybody, this is Meredith Miller with Inner Integration, and today we have a special guest. With us is Dr. George Simon. Dr. Simon has a PhD in clinical psychology and over 25 years experience working with character-impaired individuals, as well as those who have found themselves in relationships with such persons. He is a best-selling author of several books, including In Sheep's Clothing, Understanding and Dealing with Manipulative People, which will be coming out in Spanish soon. And Dr. Simon is retired from clinical practice, although he continues writing books and articles, as well as giving workshops. Welcome, Dr. Simon. Thank you. And I, I must say, I also do web-based consultations, uh, both with uh, toxic relationship survivors and, believe it or not, increasingly with disturbed characters who have come to a place in their life where things aren't working so well anymore. Um, it's very strange. You know, uh, the perception is that many folks with character disturbances are never going to change, but I have found that not to be true. It depends on where they are on the spectrum, so to speak, um, and uh, what kind of life circumstances have taught them some lessons. So uh, the very interesting thing has been in the last several years 
is I get more and more uh, requests for consultations, not just from people who have read something in one of my books and it told them that, hey, maybe I'm the person to talk to to kind of figure things out with their relationship. But I'm getting more and more requests from people who say something like, you know, I got to admit, you describe me perfectly in these books. Uh, I have to admit I've had nothing but failed relationships. Um, maybe it's time to try something different, but I don't know how to change. Can you help? You know, wow. go, go figure. Um, yeah. Would you would you say those are more the covert types? Uh, some have been the covert types. Um, and uh, as you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit more in depth uh, later on. Uh, uh, my perspective is that character disturbance, because it's so widespread, is on a spectrum, much like we realized about almost all other mental health conditions. Uh, there's a spectrum of severity and a spectrum of, of quality, too. Um, and everybody falls along the spectrum somewhere. And depending on where someone is on that spectrum, the prognosis is a little bit different. Uh, you know, uh, and also the means of intervention are different. So this is one of the things I train about. Matter of fact, I'm going to Salt Lake City next week to do my last training of the year. But this is one of the things I train about. You're training other therapists and mental health practitioners? Right. Yeah. Uh, because I, I cannot tell you, I probably get 50 to 60 emails a week from people who have experienced what we call therapy-induced trauma. Oh, wow. Which, which means that they went for help. Yeah. And they ended up somehow feeling worse. Yeah. You know, a number of things can happen there. Uh, you know, depending on the approach of the therapist and depending on their kind of orientation and the way they see things and their own issues and mental blocks, uh, a real charmer, a real um, skilled manipulator, someone skilled at the art of impression management, as we call it, can uh, create a favorable impression and make the therapist think that, you know, they're much less toxic than right. they are. Um, and then the person who kind of coerced them into getting some help and, and to coming into a session ends up feeling misunderstood even more and experiencing more of what we call the gaslighting effect. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen situations even when uh, people have written me saying that, um, that their therapist just didn't get it. So what they ask me is, uh, do you know someone or have you, uh, in your trainings, have you made a list of those who uh, subscribe to the general orientation that you have, who appear to get it, how these people operate, the tactics they use, et cetera, et cetera, so that I can get some genuine help. Um, and so each time I go and do a workshop, I tell the attendees uh, that if they either want to work with uh, relationship partners who have been in toxic relationships or they want to try their hand at helping those with varying degrees of character disturbances to uh, send their names to me and then I will refer people to them. That's great. I hear those stories too. I, the stories I tend to hear are the ones where the victim went to therapy by themselves 
trying to get help and the therapist didn't know how to recognize this form of abuse because it wasn't physical, it wasn't sexual. And the person will say, I ended up feeling more you know, victimized, more blamed, more traumatized than I did in that whole relationship or trying to explain it to other people. And that's very sad. So I'm glad that you're training people on how to recognize these signs. By the way, I wanted to mention your book, In Sheep's Clothing. Those of you who follow me know that I mentioned this book frequently as the book on all the tactics of covert manipulation. So if you guys haven't got that book yet, check that out. And if you haven't seen the interview that I did with Dr. Simon in 2016, I'm going to put that link up in one of the corners of the video so you can check that out. You know, um, thank you so much for mentioning that, Meredith. But I also uh, am edified that Character Disturbance, my second book, um, I have five, one one almost nearing completion. But my, my second book, Character Disturbance, has not been out quite as long as In Sheep's Clothing, but it's the more broad-based description of all the disturbed characters out there. And there's something in that book that the research is just now catching up on. Uh, There's a lot of talk these days about narcissism and the different forms of narcissism, Um, not in small measure because we have some folks on the world stage who appear to be suffering from a great deal of it uh, and uh, demonstrating uh, just how uh, how toxic to any kind of meaningful, productive, helpful human relations uh, narcissism can be. Uh, and one of the things that I discovered early in my work that I talk about in character disturbance is that there are different varieties of narcissism. Uh, And the research is finally catching up with that. It solidly backs that up. Some of the terms that the research uses these days to classify these different types of narcissism are not the same words that I was using back when I wrote Character Disturbance, but we didn't have the words (laughs) back then. So I just kind of coined my own. Okay. Uh, but the research is backing up just about everything my clinical experience was telling me about the different types of narcissism. So character disturbance has really become now, and it's an audio book now too, it's really become the go-to book for understanding what we call the narcissism spectrum. Um, and I'm not so sure, frankly, Meredith, which, uh, which variety I think is the more insidious because, you know, some narcissists are very, very charming uh, and they make a very positive impression and you don't really know what they're capable of uh, in the way of use, abuse and exploitation until it's already happened. You know, it's it's slow and steady uh, and you you can barely believe what's happening to you un- until you've been done in. So uh, I'm not so sure which kind of narcissism is the more insidious. Right now, we're witnessing in at least one major uh, on the world stage case, a very vulgar, brash kind of narcissism that that's kind of in your face. And if you dare say anything, if you dare in any way uh, impugn me, I will just I will just beat the 
tar out of you. Uh, in one way or another, I will demean you, degrade you, throw you under the bus, whatever the game. That's pretty vulgar, pretty banal, pretty soft, sophomore, but not all forms of narcissism are like that. Uh, so, you know, we, we may be a, a little revulsed by that kind of narcissism, uh, but, you know, if, you can, if, if you're not forewarned on the front end when you witness that, um, then, then I think you really have to take a serious look at your own perspective. Uh, the other forms of narcissism, you can't blame anybody for being hoodwinked right. because charmers know just what to say, just what to do to seduce. And uh, I, I mentioned in many uh, in many of my uh, online articles, uh, my blog articles, I, I mentioned that uh, at the front end of these relationships with these charmers, uh, victims mistake interest for regard. All right. A person can be really, really, really interested in you for a lot of reasons, and that interest itself is very flattering. Right. You know. So you, you can be easily swept off your feet when you think, this person really, really, really wants me. That's really ego building. Now, the question is why they want you and what they intend to do with you. <laughs> that's, that's a whole different matter, a whole different matter. And many times you don't know that until you've been pretty well used and abused. And even then, I think it's very hard to get actual proof, something to put your finger on. You're always left with that plausible deniability because they're so good at hiding their tracks. And I think that if I if I'm more if I'm to look at this overt display of narcissism that you're describing now on the world stage, that's the blessing that I see is that we finally have an overt transparent type who wakes up every day and gets on Twitter and reveals himself. And so people can finally see, like, the word narcissism is becoming more of a household term. Right. And that's that sad? <laughs> it's, it's sad, but I think we're moving in the right direction. I see, I see positives to that, and I see also some things that make me concerned. And the positive is that people are learning what this is. They're starting to understand that it's more than just selfies and looking in the mirror. That's a very superficial form of narcissism that really isn't hurting a lot of people. It's right. much bigger than that. My concern, right. though, is that now there's so much of the media attention on this is the face of narcissism. And that how are people going to recognize the covert type? So my fear is that we're going to go back to the covert types, just like the ones that are in the background. And then people will go back to sleep. All of those who are awake now and calling it out are probably going to go back to sleep because it's much easier when, you know, when it's when it's so much more sophisticated and eloquent and diplomatic. I think it's easier to kind of forgive that than when it's so in your face and so impossible to deny. That's my concern about about what's coming after this. Yeah. You know, uh, in my workshops, I really have to chastise the attendees sometimes about their reluctance to judge the number one predictor of future irresponsible or abusive behavior. Past behavior. Past behavior. <laughs> right. uh, you know, most clinicians 
even though they received the training, most clinicians just do not like the behavioral perspective. We're always wanting to look underneath for those unconscious, hidden, inner conflicts that drive behavior as opposed to judging behavior. Mm. Um, so, you know, this kind of mentality has really, uh, has really encroached into the general public as well. And I can tell you without any question, as a matter of fact, I have a vignette that I do in my workshops about this, about an abuse victim who did everything to try and understand. You know, if I could only figure out uh, why he or she feels so sensitive ab about this, whenever, whenever I, uh, I try and address an issue, why, why they get so quote unquote defensive, what's driving, what, what underlying fear must there be, what underlying insecurity, if I could just figure that out, then maybe they wouldn't do this, or maybe I could modify my own behavior in such a way as to not set them off. Yeah. You know, like they're responsible for somebody else's behavior. Well, I think that's what codependents feel. And it's it's along that line of, well, if I just love them more, then maybe they won't do that anymore. And right. that's not reality. And I think you're right. There's so maybe it's in the profession of psychology, but I see it in society in general right now. It's like maybe it's also coming out of like the spiritual circles and stuff is like this no judgment thing. And there is some truth to that. We don't want to be judgmental jerks, but there is a thing about having good judgment and labeling behavior for what it is. Right. That was the huge blessing I found in your book in Sheep's Clothing is you list those tactics like there are names for those things that happen. And after reading that book a few years ago, I was able then to watch human interactions. Like, you know, the weather broadcast comes across. It's like beep, 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 beep. Yeah. And it's like gaslighting, yes. incoming, guilt tripping, you know, and all of those things would just come across the screen. And it made it so much easier to see it what for what it is without falling into it, you know, into those behaviors of people pleasing or accommodating or fawning right. or freezing or whatever. Right. So I think it's very important that we're not afraid to label the behavior. In fact, I see that as a very important step in the early stage of recovery is putting those labels on the behavior and being able to label the abuser, you know, whether you want to call them an abuser, a manipulator, whatever, so that you can start to break down the cognitive dissonance where part of you really wants to believe they're a good person. Right. And, you know, I this plays out so many times at the beginning of a relationship that's going to end up toxic. Uh, you know, you in meeting the person for the first time, you might learn that they have had maybe a couple of failed marriages, maybe uh, a whole list, a whole history of failed relationship. And of course, it's always that they got together with the wrong person or they were misunderstood or they were disrespected, or whatever. The, the, there's always a plausible explanation. But the mere fact of the history tells a story. Okay, already at this age, whatever it is, 30 or something, or, you know, whatever it is, seven failed relationships. The person has to ask, this had to happen somehow. 
And it can't be everybody else's fault. <laughs> you know, yeah. past behavior is a huge predictor of future behavior. So, you know, it's time to beware and it's time to scrutinize more carefully. Unfortunately, a lot of folks don't. They, they, they buy into whatever the storyline is, especially whatever the storyline is about what was underneath all that, uh, right. which is really, I hate to say it's irrelevant because it isn't irrelevant, but in the big picture these days, in our day of fairly widespread character dysfunction, it's relatively unimportant. Behavior tells the bigger story. Right. It tells the bigger story. I think it's confusing too for victims because there are some manipulators like that who will be in decades long relationships because that gives them the good cover. They get to play, you know, the good husband, the good mother, the good spouse, whatever. And I also think on the flip side, it can be confusing for victims who've been codependent all their life. And they've also had a series of unsuccessful relationships for different reasons than the character disordered person, but it's because they keep getting into the same patterns. Right. And the victim also needs to accept self-responsibility. You know, not that the abuse was our fault, it never was, but the self-responsibility for our own choices and actions and needing to look at the things in ourselves that we need to shift so that we stop matching up and choosing those people. Yeah, you know, um, if you don't mind, uh, because there's a lot of talk about these codependent relationships, and there's two words in psychology that have been so horribly abused over the past several de de decades, I feel almost obliged to say something about that. Um, the term codependency, when Melody uh, Beatty uh, uh, first uh, coined that term, she was referring to the phenomenon in a, in a uh, in a truly substance addicted family system where somebody is physically, psychologically, hopelessly addicted to a substance. Their whole line, their whole life, is governed by that substance. In such family systems, the enablers in the family, the people who try to pick up the pieces, who try to make everything work, while the perfectly dysfunctional pers person is making everything a mess, all the other people in the system have their lives equally governed by that same substance. Right. And that's the, that is the basis of what we call codependency. In other words, in a strange way, both the physically addicted person and everybody else that's trying to pick up the pieces, both seem to be equally dependent upon the substance of choice. That's the true meaning of codependency. Emotional dependency, in other words, needing the external validation of somebody else so badly. Uh, unwise choices. In, even in the face of obvious behavior that says run away, emotional dependency has absolutely nothing to do with codependency, but we use that term. So and we, I, I kind of see it. 
I kind of see that substance in the narcissistic relationship because the narcissistic supply. Sometimes it's money, it's sex, it's emotions, and both people's lives really are governed because that the whole exchange between the character disordered person and the victim or the target is that supply source. Yeah, uh, but I mean, you can look at it that way, but what traps the other person in the relationship is the, is the tactic that the narcissist uses. In other words, on those occasions when they will flatter, uh, when they will uh, um, seduce, on those occasions when they will build you up for their own purposes, that need in you speaks something else. In other words, when you don't know solidly where your own worth comes from, mm-hmm. right, and that nobody else can really purchase it for you or afford it to you, when you don't know that, you're vulnerable, not just to narcissists, but to a lot of other no goodniks out there. So uh, I'm a real stickler for um, uh, not just for uh, 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 accurate assessment, but for the terms that we use. There's another term, too, acting out. Uh, it's become synonymous with misbehavior. Freud would roll over in his grave <laughs> if he knew that we had defined acting out as misbehavior. <laughs> it has a specific meaning, but you'd never know it these days. What is uh, the meaning, the Freud meaning? Um, acting out has to do with an unconscious battle, unconscious, mind you, going on in someone that is so remote to their conscious awareness that the only way the con- the conflict is visible is through action. So I give an example at my, one of my workshops. I give an example of the guy who's worked all night on some project at work, and he finally gets it together at the 11th hour. He hasn't slept a wink. He gets it right at the 11th hour, right on time, 9 o'clock in the morning, puts it on the boss's desk, and the boss just says, well, it's about time. And then the guy uh, in leaving the office is really upset that he, he didn't get any more recognition than that. Uh, and he mutters under his breath, that SOB. Uh, but then he goes into the uh, restroom and he starts washing his hands. And he compulsively washes and washes and washes until he blisters. And he has no idea, absolutely no idea, that that little utterance of that SOB so offended his really oppressive conscience that he felt dirty for even thinking that that SOB boss was an SOB. And so he's taking it out on himself and washing his hands, trying to cleanse himself from the dirty thing that he just thought. You know, he has no idea. So he acts out, this is what Freud would say, he's acting out a drama that's going on inside that he's completely unaware of. Now just smacking your partner is not acting out. Uh, we have become loose, 
with terms. Mm -hmm. They've made the, their way into the public parlance, but they actually have meaning. And one of the reasons why uh, I like to say that work with character impaired people is particularly delicate work and, and with their relationship survivors. Uh, we don't have room for looseness, looseness anymore. Um, uh, and we also need to be very careful when we start working with folks, um, how we intervene. Many counselors think all you have to really do is just sit down and talk with somebody. Well, that might be nice and everybody could use a good friend, uh, but if you don't really know what needs attention and how it needs attending to, then you're not going to really be of uh, help. And that's why so many people every week email me with that right. same complaint. You know, went for help, didn't get it. Went Why do help. you think they're not teaching this form of abuse in the training programs? I've heard from several therapists who said, we didn't learn this. I got into this because I didn't have a clue. Yeah. Well, because all of our all of our traditional theories arose out of the study of this phenomenon we call neurosis. That's what I in all my trainings. That's what I talk about. Matter of fact, I spend the first half of the day explaining the difference between the phenomenon of neurosis and the phenomenon of character dysfunction and what the differences have to be in the approach. I spend the whole half of a day just doing that because what I want for, for the clinician to happen is for that light bulb to go off, you know, and, and for them to say, oh, you know, I'll just give, I'll give you one example. In, in traditional therapy, what we call insight-oriented psychotherapy, that's the, the traditional kind of grew out of Freud's work and Jung's work and some of the others. In traditional insight-oriented therapy, we assume that a fairly conscientious person who is making, them sick with making themselves sick with unnecessary worry, excessive guilt, shame, uh, for one thing or another, unresolved, has these inner conflicts and fears going on that they're totally unaware of. So all they really need to do is talk and, and uh, in a supportive environment and things will come out and they will have this kind of aha experience and see what's really bothering them. And as soon as they see what's really bothering them, they'll start to get better. That's the traditional approach. This was the case for most people who came to see mental health professionals and for a long time. It's not the case these days. More and more people are having problems in their lives, not so much because of unresolved inner conflicts, but because of the really uh, dysfunctional ways they look at things and the dysfunctional ways they act um, in their relationships with other people. Uh, they haven't grown up, <laughs> basically, uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a moral level, really. Uh, and uh, so the whole approach has to be different. 
And we're just now getting it that we need to uh, approach things differently. I, I, uh, I, I joke with a therapist in my training. I, uh, I, I talk about the fact that we therapists many times, we get almost delusional. Uh, I've done this. I've done this with character impaired uh, clients. We think that we're going to be that one person who is going to put their whole life and their circumstances in front of them, lay things out for them in such a beautifully poetic way that they will look at us and they will say, oh, my God, no one has ever explained it to me like that before. I finally see it now. Thanks to you. Oh, my whole life is going to be different. That never happens. It never happens, but you know what? It doesn't stop us from thinking that's what we need to do. It's it's pretty crazy when you think about it. And it's a little bit delusional to think that we're gonna be so poetic that, that we will tell them for the umpteenth time something that they've heard a thousand times over. Um, and it made no difference. Because it's not so much that I, I use these little rhyming phrases. It's not so much that they don't see. The problem is that what they see, they disagree with. Huh. It's not so much that they don't see. It's that they disagree. You know, you tell them it's not OK to do this or that. They see that other people say that. They know that other people think that way. But they don't think that's right. Right. <laughs> the problem is not in the seeing, it's in the disagreeing, which is a behavior which can be modified. So as soon as clinicians start thinking differently, it's amazing what can happen. But we're so trained. You're absolutely right. We've been so trained for years with an approach that is meant for something else entirely that we just it's truly, it, it sounds maybe a, a little harsh, but we, we truly just don't know what we're doing when it comes to dealing with character disturbance many times. I think that's because the typical rules don't apply. Like the typical rules of human engagement are out the window because these people don't play by the rules. That's right. They got a different set of rules. Okay. And so what I developed over the course of, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, the blurb I gave you said I've been doing this for over 25 years. It's been closer to 40 now. <laughs> but what I developed over the course of that 40 years is this art of what I call benign confrontation. It's a, it's a more sophisticated kind of tough love where basically you don't hesitate to call out the twisted ways of thinking about things and the dysfunctional behavior, but you call it out in a way that is both inescapable yet loving. In other words, the person has to know that what you want more than anything else is for things to be better for them and for everybody else. But in order for that to happen, they have to change. And when that message comes through, you, uh, you would not believe how powerful it is. It's really powerful. 
That's why I've been able to do this work for this long and not burn out. <laughs> I've actually enjoyed it because I had the pleasure of seeing countless numbers of toxic relationship and abuse survivors empower themselves and move on to stronger, uh, more fulfilling lives. But I've also seen people who I thought were only going to maybe end up in prison or uh, uh, cause nothing but trouble in the lives of other people for a long, long time. I've witnessed them change too. So I don't know how you get a career more rewarding than that. Okay. But the first thing I had to do was I had to change my perspective because just as you just said, the same rules don't apply. Okay. And as soon as I got that, as soon as the light bulb went off for me, that I just have to do it differently. It, it actually became much easier. I'm not saying the work is easy. It's not easy, but it sure became a lot easier. What happens when you do the benign confrontation and like that hits the firewall of no self-responsibility of the person? And then they start using all the tactics in your book. Right. Yeah, yeah. You need to expect resistance and you will get it. <laughs> that's just, that's part of the deal. But I, I have one vignette where the, it goes on for about 40 minutes in a session and the whole therapy is in regardless of the tactics that this person throws and regardless of the resistance, you just don't budge. Because the, the, in this particular vignette, this is a person who's like the bulldozer, the, the bulldozer person at work who just keeps on and on and on until people relent. And they, you know, they just get tired of fighting, you know, and they just throw in the towel. And then, you know, he gets what he wants. And, and that reinforces, in behavioral terms, that reinforces the style. Uh, so really, the whole therapy was in just me not budging even though it was nothing but resistance, solid resistance for 40 minutes. You know, I expect that. I expect that. I expect that if somebody's been doing something a certain way or thinking about things a certain way for much of their life, and to them it appears to be largely working. Maybe they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars. Maybe they've, you know, had and thrown away many relationships, but exploited them just just as they wanted to, you know. So if somebody's been doing that all their life and it appears to be working, why shouldn't they resist? Why shouldn't they? And many times it's baby steps. Many times they have to kind of try out some of the things that I'm suggesting and see basically, hey, you know, that person I thought that was an idiot, maybe he has a point. Because I tried out this new way of doing things today and something unexpected happened. And I thought I had it all figured out. Hmm. You know, that's how it goes. Why do you think that around the world, these patterns are almost exactly the same, no matter what culture, race, country, socioeconomic status, gender, etc. It's like they all read the same book. Yeah, it's called Zeitgeist. 
It's called Zeitgeist. The Germans have a name for it. Zeitgeist. It has to do with the cultural climate. Um, and uh, I tell my uh, folks in the workshops, um, in Freud's time, the reason there were so many of these folks that were truly neurotic, pathologically neurotic, had really bizarre symptoms like paralyses that weren't real and numbnesses that weren't physiologically based and even blindness that wasn't physiologically based. I use that example in my opening remarks in my workshop. But the social climate of the time was horrendously repressive. It was the Victorian era. Uh, I, I, I say that if there were a motto or a slogan that, that would that, would describe the zeitgeist of the time, it would be, don't even think about it. Right. So people were nervous wrecks. Wow. Okay. Um, and they were literally making themselves sick with anxiety-related symptoms. The cultural climate has changed all over the world. And if there were a motto or a slogan uh, that could be used to describe the change, uh, in Zeitgeist, I would I, I say it's kind of like the old Nike commercial, just do it. Huh. Right? So instead of having people who are overly hung up, as we children of the 60s used to say, um, uh, instead of having people who are overly hung up and making themselves sick with unnecessary worry uh, and hang ups, uh, we have folks among us today who unfortunately aren't quite hung up enough about the things that they let themselves do. And that's because of the, the permissive and relativistic nature of culture. Uh, and it's not just here, it's everywhere. You know, I, my In Sheep's Clothing is now in 27 foreign languages. Nice. Um, and it's been a steady growth because as countries where there was what's more repression and they weren't having these kinds of problems as their societies loosened up. Oh, wow. And they got more freedom and there was more moral relativism, et cetera, et cetera. As that happened in these other countries, guess what? They started experiencing the same problems that we have been experiencing for a long time. And so that's why over the years, more and more uh Countries have been asking for the rights to my work because their clinicians in those countries are seeing the same kinds of things. Uh, they're increasingly having to work with people with character disturbances and for the same reasons. So it's culture based. It's culture based in the fact that we are we are animals to start with. I, I like to say in, a, in several articles that I've written, and I make the point hugely in four of my books, that, you know, socialization is a process. It's a process, and it takes a whole village. It takes a sound foundation within the home, and all too often, unfortunately, that's not there. Right. And then it takes a lot of reinforcement within the greater society, and many times that's not there. So, uh, you know, we're kind of heathens to start. And 
I'm glad you asked that question because this is another thing that I tell my clinicians and that um, I think awareness about this will really change things in the future as far as our ability to help. We have for a long time assumed that the only thing that messes people up is trauma. And that if people didn't have trauma in their life, they would all grow up to be just wonderful, kind, beautiful, loving people. I wish that were true. We are animals. <laughs> and we have to learn to be civil. And the great, the more insidious characteristic of our cultural problems is not necessarily the trauma that happens. Trauma does happen. And when trauma happens, it does arrest character development. But the more insidious thing is all the lessons that aren't being learned that need to be learned for us to be transformed from mere animals into civilized human beings. And I'm guessing that has to take place really young, right? In the Absolutely. Yeah, and it has to take place within the right kind of environment, and it has to be backed up. It has to be backed up. You know, we're not, we're not idiots. We figure out how it works, and we figure out how to survive and prosper. And um, we have now the the uh, American Psychiatric Association is in the is in the uh, the weird position to have to completely redefine what constitutes a personality disorder. Why? Because even this horribly brash, vulgar display of narcissism we see in a central character on the world stage is functional, has made hundreds of millions of dollars, has made it to high office. We got we to gotta completely rework our definitions because we had it in our mind that nobody could be like this and succeed in life. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, yes, you yeah. can. <laughs> Oh yes, you can. So now, how are we going to? So now, how are we going to define what makes it a disorder? Right. You see, the, you see the dilemma. Yeah, I talk about that in my workshops too. I see there being like two different forms. I mean, there's many different archetypes, right? But the two forms of like, there's a bottom feeder type, you know, and they're just like basically a parasite, like you know, going from person to person using all their resources, and then there's like the top echelon. And so it seems like, you know, there's there's ones in between, too, but it seems like these are two very clear different types that's not accounted for in the DSM. But what's really not accounted for is the covert type. And I see, again, different types among that one being that victim, vulnerable, so-called vulnerable type who like needs other people to rescue them. And they're always the victim. And then there is this very stealth, super sophisticated type that plays the victim, but in a very different way from a way of, you know, having a lot of power. Yeah. And I think that being that the book doesn't really represent that, I think that's another struggle for clinicians to recognize it in real life. Because if you read the book, you don't have any idea what that looks like in real life. Right, right. You know, um, 
when I when I first wrote in sheep's clothing, you know, it, it's going to be um, its release, its wide release. Its first release was in 1995, and its first wide wide release was 1996. Wow. So here we are in 2019. It's hard for me to believe that a book has maintained its bestseller status that long. Only Road Less Traveled uh, by Scott Peck uh, came close to that as far as longevity with 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 the kinds of, 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 of market penetration. And I think there's one reason for that, because you talked about the DSM not getting it with respect to the covert stuff. I recognized early on before we had this term gaslighting. Before we even before it was a term, I was seeing the effect of it. I witnessed it. And I thought there's a phenomenon here. Mm-hmm. These people think they're crazy, but they're not crazy. Somebody's making them think they're crazy, mm-hmm. and I just figured out how they're doing it, and that's what inspired me to write the book. So in the opening lines of the introduction of the book, I, I get hundreds of emails about this. As soon as people pick it up and they read that part, you know, because they're looking for something, they're only going to pick up my book if they're, you know, if they're in a situation and they're trying to figure out what's making me feel so so bad. As soon as they read those introductory words and I say, you're not crazy. This is why you feel this way. This is how they're doing it. It's slick. It's subtle. Your gut tells you one thing, but you can't verify it. But that doesn't mean you're crazy. It just means they're slick. As soon as somebody with a PhD tells them that, it's like, (sighs) you know, it's like relief. Um, And so um, we have this effect that we now call the gaslighting effect. Um, And now I kind of lost where I was going with that. I, I guess what I wanted to say is that with respect to some of the other things that I'm writing about now, I think that th- the same thing will be true. I think the same thing will be true. Once that aha kind of experience happens with somebody, once they say, yeah, you know, this this makes sense. This resolves all that cognitive dissonance that I've had, you know, because this is what I've sensed all along. And now I finally feel validated. Um, I think that's what's going to make the difference uh, in in all the other work that I have coming up. Where do you see us going as society? You know, being that you're talking about this cultural thing that's creating this permissiveness, which is allowing space for this to really take off and become the pandemic that it is today. Where do you see us going as a global society? Yeah, birthing pains are very... Painful. I see us on the cusp of a of a new age. I really do. I I I know I may sound pessimistic. I'm not, but it's going to be really rough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for you to really find your values, for you to really claim basic human values, there has to be suffering first. And you have to sit with the suffering. You have to, you have to, in honest and humble 
defeat. You know, in the in the 12-step programs, they call this hitting bottom. In honest and humble defeat, you have to say, okay, so why, why has everything fallen down? Why is everything a mess? Why is my life a shipwreck? Or as they say in the first step in AA, why have things become unmanageable? Hmm. And as soon as you honestly reckon with that, it's the beginning. That's why they call it the first step. It's a it's a hope. You know, isn't that strange? It's the first step to what recovery, right? Which is the most beautiful thing, and it starts with what a crash, a hitting absolute bottom, where there's no lower to go. And that's what I see happening right now. But we will, I do believe, in the end, claim some core values about what it means to be a human being, what it means to uh, help one another guarantee our survival, our prosperity. Whether we like it or not, or whether we realize it or not, we're all connected. Right. We're all... You and me, we're connected. Look at what we're doing right now. And we're doing it because we know we have to do it. And the rest is not in our hands. That's in the universe's hands. But we feel the obligation, we, we take on the obligation to do it. And, you know, there's a, a psychologist who did all the work with criminal personalities, Stanton Samenow. He said the one variable he found with people with severe uh character dysfunction is they never felt any kind of a sense of obligation because they could not even recognize, let alone serve a higher power. Hmm. So, you know, when we feel that inner obligation to bring something to this universe, to, to make our existence matter, to do our part, to bring the much needed healing, we can't control the outcome, but we sure can. We sure can do the behavior, you know. So we're all doing our own small little part. You and I are doing our own small little part. Your videos. I, I can't tell you the number of people who have told me because uh, I, I, you and I have to have a conversation sometime about how savvy you've you, you've become with. Uh, with web marketing, but I, I, I have 20 some videos on the net and all together, uh, they, they're about what one of the videos that we did, uh, in views has. So you, you, you've locked onto something. Um, and, uh, I can't tell you how many people have said that just coming across the material made a change made a change in their life. Same thing is happening now with the consultations I do. I do them all over the world. People contact me through the blog or otherwise they'll, they'll find me. And uh, uh, I network via Skype or FaceTime or Zoom or any, any of the platforms. And uh, what they're looking for is the same thing that people uh, uh, who initially picked up in sheep's clothing in wanted to understand that gaslighting effect we're looking for. They just want to know what the heck is going on. They want that perspective that will illuminate them, that will set them on the path. They don't want somebody to nursemaid them through 
can't walk their path for them. They just they just want to get regrounded. And so um, we'll have a little chat. And as, as soon as they see it, they're on their way. Right. And I can't think of anything in the world more fulfilling. You just, just do your little part. You just do, you just give back to the universe what the universe somehow gave you. And it starts to get better. We're on the cusp of it. I just know it, but it's going to be really, it's going to be really testy. I'm afraid the world is a powder keg right now. I have the same feeling. I think that whole global power system it has to collapse in order for something better to be reborn because there's no fixing it. There's no electing the right person because it's so much bigger than the puppet that's in power. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and that's sad in a way, but if we're gonna make it at all, right, right, that's just the way it has to be first. Right. Uh, and that's why we can't lose faith. And besides which, you know, species come and go. If we're meant to make, if the if the universe means for this species to make, right. <laughs> you know, we'll have to get it together. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to think about the alternative. I'm gonna... <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right, too, that, you know, there's something about when a collective tragedy happens, that there's like an opportunity for people to come together to have an awakening of a perspective. I saw that after the earthquake here a couple years ago, like everybody got together and they just started helping people and organizing, you know, not counting on the government, not waiting for anybody to save us. Like everybody got together and made it happen. And I hope, I believe in the humanity that we can do the same sort of thing, you know, if this were to happen as like a collective global crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we have a few minutes uh, and I want to make sure that we cover everything that you wanted to cover today. Is there anything you can think of that um, we haven't covered that uh, your listeners might really want to know about that um, haven't spoken enough about? So I think we hit all the main questions that I wanted to ask. Um, I guess just to clarify one final thing is, you know, what do you see as like the solution to this global pandemic in terms of like very specific things that individuals could do to make a difference in this pandemic? Mm -hmm. The first step of all the 12 step programs, the very first step is acknowledging what the issue is. When we make character the issue again, when we, when we recognize that it is the issue, when we admit that it's the issue and we make it matter, things will start to get better. This is a, you know, I quote a, 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 a great researcher in here um, uh, Martin E.P. Seligman is the uh, he's the originator of the learned helplessness paradigm that I talk a lot about in my work because it really uh, is a feature of many kinds of depression. And uh, he was one of those uh, uh, researchers in the lab that thought that there wasn't anything that you couldn't demonstrate 
uh, about human behavior that you couldn't demonstrate with a rat in a laboratory experiment. Um, and um, such researchers poo-pooed the notion of character, you know, even regarded it as a false kind of construct. Uh, yeah, uh, this is what he had to say in a book that he wrote with somebody else uh, fairly recently. And I, I quote him on the opening pages of Character Disturbance. After a detour through the hedonism of the 60s, the narcissism of the 70s, the materialism of the 80s, and the apathy of the 90s, most everyone today seem, seems to have come to the realization that character is indeed important after all, and that the United States is facing a character crisis, not just the United States, and on many fronts, from the playground, to the classroom, to the sports arena, to the Hollywood screen, to business corporations, to politics. You know, I am old. I'm going to be 72 here very soon. So I know I'm old, but I can still, re I'm not that old, and I can still remember. I can remember when somebody could have all the talent in the world. But if there was a chance that they could disgrace a team with their behavior or their attitude or their manner of relating to other people, in other words, if their character was going to bring disgrace, they were not going to be hired. I don't care how talented they were. That's what's changed. Yeah. And that's what needs to change for things to get better. Right. When we make character matter, it will matter. It will matter. Here in the United States, it didn't seem to matter. Right. Yeah. But you're right. It is a global phenomenon. It's not just in the USA. Yeah. 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 People have been so conditioned to believe that if they can just put some puppet in there to give them what, who says that they'll give them what they want. Right. That things will be all right. Oh. It's up to us. Right. We're all connected, whether we realize it or not, appreciate it or not, accept it or not. We're all connected. We're all in this together. And it's up to us to fix it. For me, that's the most important part is the self-responsibility. I think if each one of us took responsibility for ourselves. And part of that is the awareness of the problem because right. you can't fix it if you don't know what's wrong. Right. But taking that self-responsibility, you know, each individual working on that, what a different world we'd be living in. Right. And so we're, do we're doing our part. Right. And that's why I wanted to reconnect with you. I, 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 I was just, I was really kind of stunned. Uh, uh, the, the one video that we did uh, uh, three years ago, has 600 some thousand views. I thought, oh my goodness. Wow. But that also tells you how hungry people are. Right. People need the information. That's right. for sure. Right. So you and I need to have a conversation about how, how you're doing. You, you've developed a, a savvy there, an internet savvy that uh, uh, would, would be helpful to me as I as I branch out into new areas, I'm building a new studio in my new home. We're cleaning out this place here. That's why there's no drapes on the wall. Okay. 
and uh, I'll be doing new podcasts from there and um, uh, uh, finishing this book that I, where I introduced in Character Disturbance, The Ten Commandments of Character. It's going to be from a more spiritual, holistic health kind of uh, perspective as opposed to just pure moralism and psychology. And it's about those, those major those major principles of living on this planet with everybody else that we have to eventually embrace if we're going to make it and if we're going to be the kind of people who build healthy, lasting, intimate relationships. Dr. Simon, tell my viewers, please, where they can find you. Uh, drgeorgesimon.com, that's D-R-G-E-O-R-G-E, simon.com, or manipulative-people.com. Um, uh, that's the easiest way. I'll, I'll even give my uh, my email address. It's georgekaysimon at sbcglobal.net. Uh, the reason I'm giving that out lately is because I'm inundated with requests for consultations. And... Uh, I can only answer so many emails a day, but if somebody writes me directly and they put consultation request in the subject line, I know to prioritize it and I'll get back sooner. That doesn't mean quickly, <laughs> but so but sooner than I otherwise would. Cause like I said, it's, it takes me a long time to sift through the email and I, I don't have an assistant just yet doing that, but maybe I should. <laughs> so on your website, do you also have the links like to your YouTube channel, your podcast and all those things as right. well? Okay. Yes. Uh, and the new podcast will start right around Christmas time. Nice. Yeah. We'll start the new year off with a bang. Awesome. Well, Dr. Simon, this information is on that. Please do. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a pleasure, and I'm sure there's a lot of valuable content in here to continue helping people who are looking for help in this arena. Uh, thank you. Well, all the best to you, and I hope we connect again soon. Me too. Take care. All right. Bye, Dr. Simon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you to see from a new perspective and to start using new tools so you can take action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough. You matter. And you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at innerintegration.com where you get instant access to a free quick start guide to recovery after narcissistic abuse upon entering your name and email. You'll also find there digital courses that have already helped thousands of people move through the self-healing process. Get loads more free inner integration content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.